This is White Collared, the podcast, Season 2, Episode 8, Company Man. I would like to welcome you to this episode of White Collared, the podcast, which is a retrospective commentary on the USA Network television series, White Collar. My name is Eric Alton Glenn Hilliard. Jumping right into the episode, Company Man first aired on August 31st, 2010. It was written by Jim Campolongo and directed by Rosemary Rodriguez. The White Collar team is assigned to a murder case linked to corporate espionage involving a company competing for defense contracts to develop next-generation computing technology. Meanwhile, Mozzie is forced to team up with Diana in the search for the music box. But then Mozzie discovers a secret. The episode begins with Peter and Neil in the bullpen discussing a case that they have concluded, with Neil demonstrating the principle of follow the money by doing a magic trick for Peter and trying to steal the quarter that Peter lent him to do the trick. They move to the conference room where Peter begins briefing the team on their newest case. Joseph Hayes, the lead R&D specialist for Nova Systems, which is a company that manufactures everything from cell phones to supercomputers, dropped dead of an apparent heart attack. Evidence suggests that it was induced by a fatal dose digitalis. Reportedly missing from his person at the time of his death was a functioning prototype of a next-generation quantum microprocessor that Novus had apparently developed and which they were apparently relying on in their competition with several other companies for a major defense contract. Wesley Kent, the founder and CEO of Novus, was pointing fingers at his competitors, but according to the police, Kent had an after-hours meeting on his calendar with Hayes the night he died, and the story he gave didn't fit the timeline. Peter says they're going to have to infiltrate Nova Systems to investigate Wesley Kent and to find out why he lied and to find out what he's trying to hide. Neil, of course, assumes that he's going in. He states that he knows a bit about corporate culture, but a few minutes earlier when the topic came up and Peter asked if anyone knew what a quantum microprocessor was, Neil had no clue. He tried to bluff his way through, and he failed miserably. So the question would be, how did Neil think that he could infiltrate the company in a believable fashion and do so in a position that would get him close to Kent? I don't see that there's any way that he could create a believable backstory for himself that would qualify him to enter a tech company without knowing tech. You can't bluff technology people when you don't know about technology. And so despite Neil's confidence in his abilities to con people, he would have been spotted as a plant fairly quickly, I would think. So, Neil isn't going in, but who is? Peter says Novus has its annual audit scheduled. Kent is expecting an accountant from Bainfield Financial to show up to conduct that audit, but instead of a real Bainfield auditor, it will be Peter Lassen, CPA, better known to the FBI as Peter Burke. But Neil has a few choice comments about that. You joined the FBI to avoid number crunching. Glad your accounting degree hasn't gone to waste. I was recruited by several Fortune 500 companies. It's hard to picture you at a big financial firm. Been a life changer. That's true. Some alternate universe should be wearing power ties, doing power lunches, flying corporate jets. Doubt we'd have ever met. Well, maybe, under different circumstances. Well, that's true. You might have robbed the company. Yeah. You could have had a mansion. I like my house. 
horses. I've got a dog. No regrets, huh? No. I've got the bureau. I've got Elizabeth. No. No regrets. No regrets. As I've said before, Peter is a deviled ham sandwich, eat at the counter kind of guy. Not the sort of guy that would really be happy with the high-end lifestyle that Neil suggests that Peter could have had had he pursued the corporate lifestyle. And significantly, we learned that Peter could have had a shot at that lifestyle, having been courted by multiple Fortune 500 companies. And although it isn't explicitly stated here, I think the implication is pretty clear. Peter chose not to pursue those offers, and instead chose to pursue a career in the FBI. I don't think it was the second choice, a choice based on the failure to achieve success as an accountant, and it clearly wasn't a choice guided by financial self-interest. I think there was a deliberate choice motivated by what? I don't know. Maybe a sense of moral responsibility, a motivation to make the world a better place instead of being a well-paid cog in some corporate machine. I think it's probably some of both of those things and possibly more things. But I think we can pretty much presume that Peter's choices were more altruistic than anything else. During this conversation and exchange, Peter manages to maneuver the topic from the what might have been's in Peter's life to the what is in Neil's life, and specifically Neil's pursuit of Kate's killer. Banfield putting you up? Yeah, company booked me in a suite at a four-star hotel. Impressive. Yeah. Almost as impressive as you're getting Kate's flight recorder data. That's right. Sarah told me. Neil, if you're working on this, so am I. I'm not working on anything. Which means Mozzie's working on it. I want somebody from my team involved. Peter, no he protests. Not... We are working on this together. All right, who'd you have in mind? Diana. What? She will eat him alive. Well, he's not much of a meal. I want you to arrange a meeting. Are you sure this. Go. When will Neil learn? He really can't hide anything from Peter. And Peter is not going to let Neil pursue this case on his own. And Peter knows when Neil is obfuscating or lying by telling a literal truth. Neil tries to deny that he's working on the case, that he's working on interpreting the flight data recording, or actually the voice cockpit recording, which is, in a way, a technically accurate statement. It's technically the truth, since Mozzie is the one who's actually doing the work on figuring out what the cockpit voice recorder data really means. Neil, understandably, doesn't like the idea of Diana being the one to be Mozzie's handler. Diana is no nonsense, and she's not going to put up with nonsense from Mozzie. She won't be easily deceived by Mozzie. I'm sure that Neil would have preferred that Jones be assigned to the task, and not because he's stupid, but because at least he strikes me as someone who's a bit gullible at times, who can be more easily misled. Although, admittedly, he does eventually get back on track. But it's that time period when somebody's off track, regardless of how short that time is, that Neil is able to exploit. But Diana is the sort who would leave Neil with few such opportunities. Peter arrives at Nova Systems, and we see that security is extremely tight. Not only can he not take his phone in, he can't even take in his briefcase. Now, presumably, an auditor would be bringing things with him, which would be necessary for for him to use to do an audit. Things like reference materials, copies of regulations, uh, references, and even a computer. 
And the last would be particularly important. Having to use a computer supplied by the target of the audit could potentially compromise the integrity of the audit. The first potential compromise is the possibility that the target company could monitor the auditor. A software designed to monitor all the activity of a computer being used by one individual and sending that information to another individual, including every keystroke entered into it, is commonly available. If a company, which was the target of an audit, was able to monitor the auditor in such a way, they could know the direction of the audit and know where to concentrate their efforts of hiding information that they might not want the auditor to find. A second potential compromise would be the possibility that the target company could have previously installed software which allows them to access the computer remotely, giving them the ability to remotely manipulate data previously entered into the computer by the auditor. If someone had such access, data that had already been reviewed, verified, and entered could be changed after the fact. So, for example, if an auditor put numbers into a spreadsheet, verified those figures, and came up with a questionable number, somebody could get into the computer, change those numbers on the spreadsheet, and the spreadsheet would faithfully recalculate the result based on those new altered numbers. So if the auditor tried to go back and look at that information, unless he actually had printed out copies of the information that he had put into the computer or had a very good memory, he or she would not necessarily know that those numbers had been changed after the fact. So those changes could be made, which would ultimately affect the outcome of the audit. And unless somebody re-audited the audit, it wouldn't necessarily be found. A third potential compromise would be the possibility of providing software, such as spreadsheets, which had been altered to manipulate the data or the calculations made on the data. Now, that sounds like it could be the same thing as the previous one, but it's really not. What many people don't consider is the fact that a computer program is essentially just a list of instructions. And if the instructions are invalid, or a second computer program is introduced to interfere with the valid instructions or behavior of the first program, a computer can be made to give any result desired, regardless of reality. Or to put it another way, a computer program can actually be written to say that 1 plus 1 equals any number except the correct answer of 2. In fact, this is one of the arguments against the reliance on and blind trust in computer modeling, whether it be in design, cosmology, urban planning, or anything. The belief that results of the model are accurate depend on two assumptions, that everything that can be known about the given subject is known and can be programmed properly into the computer, and that the design of the model is not based on a desired outcome or a bias of the programmers. Company security is one thing, but so is the integrity of the independence of an audit. And the fact that Peter, as the auditor, is not allowed to bring anything at all into the building, including the very things that he would need to do a legitimately independent audit, and is forced to use equipment provided by the company being audited, is going to be a problem in terms of the validity of the audit. I would think that this alone would be considered a red flag. Peter is then escorted in to meet Wesley Kent, CEO, and Peter tells him that he will need to send expense reports from his company's senior staff to the team at Banfield Financial. Well, unless Peter is going to get hard copies to send, he's definitely going to have to send the information electronically. 
And if Novus is so concerned about security that no one is allowed to bring in personal electronics, then it's likely that the company computers and network are monitored so they can know who is sending what information out. That's a common practice in a lot of businesses. I mean, after all, confidential information can be leaked through company-owned computers nearly as easily as personally-owned computers, the difference being that a company can more easily claim the right to monitor computers that they issue to staff than personal computers used by the staff, which brings us back to the issue of the audit being monitored by the target of the audit, which again constitutes a possible compromise to the integrity of that audit. And let's talk about that office. I've worked for a lot of different companies. Admittedly, none as high profile as Novice seems to be. And I've never seen an auditor given an office. They almost always set up in a conference room or some similar location. But even for a company like Novus, giving Peter an office seems overly generous, which, of course, would seem to raise yet another red flag for an auditor. It certainly raises one for me. Back into the episode, Peter is getting adjusted to his new office at Novus, and while that's happening, Neil, Mozzie, and Diana are having a meeting of the minds. Look, if I'm going to spend my time working with Lady Suit, it better be worth it. And if I'm going to spend my precious time supervising your pocket-sized pal, he better watch what he says. Why are you even here? Because my boss asked me. You? Uh, because Neil asked me? So Neil's your boss? Hey, I answer to no one, Nancy Drew. I already have one fed in my life. And I've got plenty of crooks hey, in mind. Hey, we need to find Fowler. I have rules. You have rules? You will meet me with all the pertinent files at a time and place of my choosing. I will contact you via express courier. You will receive a package. In that package will be a sonnet giving clue to our rendezvous point. You want to send me a sonnet? Yeah. I don't do scavenger hunts or poems. Uh, this is Jones. Go. I can handle this. I don't get handled. Guys, please. Adults. Okay. Maybe meeting of the minds is a bit too optimistic a description. More like a clash of wills. Mozzie really doesn't want to have to put up with another fed in his life, as he says. He is begrudgingly tolerant of Peter. I don't think he's thrilled to have Peter in his life, but he understands the situation and has accepted that there isn't really anything he can do about it. And he's realized that it's going to be easier on him to put up with it, throwing his little jabs and barbs from time to time than it would be to try and fight it. Plus, having not only observed Peter's somewhat parent-like affection for Neil, not to mention having worked with him and realizing that Peter's really a decent sort for a fed, his feelings toward Peter have mellowed somewhat from what they were initially. In the same way, Peter's dislike and distrust of Mozzie has also mellowed somewhat. He recognizes Neil's need for and reliance on Mozzie, uh, not just personally, but also with regard to Neil's work with Peter and the FBI. And in that sense, Peter has also begrudgingly realized that he needs Mozzie as well. But it's clear that Diana is going to be nothing like Peter in terms of her handling of Mozzie. Where Peter might shake his head at Mozzie and severely scold him for stepping over the line before letting him slide one time with a sincere warning not to do it again, Diana is the sort that will come down hard on him the first time. No second chance given. So it seems that Mozzie's approach here to dealing with Diana is the the best defense is a strong offense approach. He's trying to establish dominance over her. He's trying to establish himself as the alpha dog between the two of them 
and to make sure that she understands that anything he does is on Neil's behalf and not because she is a Fed or that she has any level of power and control over him and that as the alpha dog, they're going to do things his way or not at all. And, of course, Diana is having none of that. Clearly, the relationship between Mozzie and Diana is going to be very contentious. Having received a call from Jones during the exchange between Mozzie and Diana, Neil heads back to the office. The FBI has been granted a warrant to prowl through the Novus computer network and information, and Jones and Neil are ready to start examining the information as soon as they can get it. At Novus, Peter has some of the documents that he previously asked for and is trying to get logged in and set up on the computer that Kent has provided. If he can just shake off the secretary who is trying to entice him with one of their varieties of high-end coffees. Or maybe she's trying to entice him with something else. It does seem to me that she's trying to flirt with him a little bit, and perhaps none too subtly either. Peter finally decides on Italian roast, which sends the secretary off on her errand to make it for him. While she is gone, Peter pulls out a flash drive, which was cleverly disguised as a shirt cufflink, and attaches the drive to the laptop. The drive has a software program called Timbuktu, which Peter installs on the computer, and which in turn gives Jones access to the computer and the network to which that computer is attached. If you're not familiar with Timbuktu, it was a remote control program which allowed the user to control another computer across either a local network or the internet, viewing its screen and using a keyboard and mouse of the remote computer to control the target computer as though the remote operator was sitting in front of that target computer. In addition to the remote control capability, Timbuktu also allowed for file transfers. While remote control software is routinely installed on computers these days as part of the basic operating system and is typically used for legitimate technical purposes, it can also be used, or it is also used, in various forms by cybercriminals. And just as a note, Timbuktu has been retired. It's basically out of date with the newer remote access software programs providing much better, if that's the correct term to use, uh, much better access and control over remote computers. The secretary comes back in with Peter's coffee and the additional documents that he had requested as an excuse basically to get rid of her. But while that's happening, Jones is accessing the data on the novice computer systems and copying it to his computer at the FBI. Then we jump ahead, and we see Peter and Elizabeth are Skyping. He carries the laptop around so she can see the room, uh, the motel room that he has been set up in, and the view. And then he shows her what he calls the best part of the room, which is a photo of her that he brought along with him. Peter is definitely doing a better job at developing his more romantic side than he was, say, in the first episode where he had so much trouble figuring out what to do for an anniversary gift. But their romantic conversation is cut short by Neil arriving. Neil's impressed with the accommodations, but Peter manages to keep control of the conversation. Neil reports that he and Jones discovered that on the day of his death, someone had made considerable effort to get into Joseph Hayes' computer. The failed password attempts included variations on Hayes' birth date, various song titles, the name of the dog he had as a kid. All of this tells Peter that it was likely somebody close to him, which pretty much rules out Kent and his upper management as they had access to any email accounts that they might want to have access to. Peter concludes that they should begin focusing on junior executives. And since Peter is posing as an auditor, that's a problem because he would have no legitimate reason to interact with junior execs 
in a way that would allow him the opportunity to elicit that information. So he needs to embed somebody into the company who can be put into a position where they can do that. Peter says that Kent is so desperate for a clean audit that he is metaphorically kissing Peter's butt, which should be yet another red flag that things at Novice are not at all as they should be, but that Peter might be able to use that to persuade Kent to hire a friend of his into the marketing department. We jump ahead and see Neil in the offices at Novice schmoozing the staff. He's impressing them with his talk about flight to raisin ratio in breakfast cereals. Well, impressing most of them. At least one of the staff isn't all that impressed, either with the story or apparently with Neil. But after he's done impressing them, Neil pulls out the old, I came to you for pointers ploy, which, again, seems to impress all of them, save the one stick in the mud. And the name of that stick is Trent. It's revealed that the team had dinner reservations already set at a place called Drayton's. Neil is invited to join the team for dinner, but Trent tries to intimidate Neil into not joining in by challenging him to credit card roulette. They all go out, run up a nice tab, throw their company credit cards on the table, and let the server pick one. And the card that gets picked foots the bill, blowing the cardholder's dinner budget for the month. And he says, are you in? Neil's response is, lock and load. As this conversation is ending, the secretary comes up and addresses Neil as George, which is apparently his undercover name for this case, telling him that the auditor wants to talk to him. In Peter's office, Neil tells Peter that he and the marketing team, which he describes as a blend of smarmy and suspicious, is meeting for dinner that evening. Peter has a plan. If there's a mole in the company, and Neil mentions that Peter was looking into Hayes' file, and that he may have found something interesting, maybe they can get the mole to come to them. At the restaurant, the other members of the team are comparing the costs of their respective orders. And it seems that Trent tried to upstage and outspend everyone else. In his effort to outspend everyone, he apparently ordered three bottles of Opus. Now, I don't know for certain that I have the correct information on this wine, but if I do, what I was able to find was Opus One Winery in Napa Valley, California. I did not find any 2010 prices for a bottle of Opus One, but a bottle of 2009 vintage of Opus One currently sells for $2,610. But that probably wasn't the price when it was first released in 2010. So I looked at the current vintage of Opus One. That is selling for $365 a bottle. So if a bottle of the current vintage is selling for $365, then back in 2010, when this episode aired and the events of the episode would have taken place, if we cut that back a little ways and say that the price of the 2009 vintage was in the $300 per bottle range, then three bottles would have still added up. And considering that we find out in just a few minutes here that the total bill was only about two, only, yeah, say that. It's only $2,000 for a restaurant bill. Yeah. So let's say that it, it is $300 a bottle. That's still almost half or very nearly half of what the total bill is just on those three bottles of wine that Trent ordered. Back in the conversation, Neil says that he hasn't met Kent yet. And Jessica tells him that the only thing that he really needs to know about Kent is that he likes the high life almost as much as he likes quarterly profits. Andrew, another member of the team, tells Neil that if he wants to get on Kent's good side, 
the occasional bottle of Armagnac Kent's Daily Vice will do it. Neil brings up Joseph Hayes asking, hey, what's the deal with him? The conversation stalls, comes to a dead halt. When Jessica asks why he's asking, Neil says that he saw the file on the auditor's desk. And oh, by the way, he had all of their files as well, which seems to worry Trent ever so slightly. The bill comes, and as I said, it totals $2,000. Everybody throws their company cards into Neil's hat, and as he's shaking to mix the cards, he has apparently kept track of Trent's card, and he sets it up on edge, sticking it up above the others, making it the most likely card to be drawn by the waitress. And Trent sort of had it coming, since he's been needling Neil from the start. The waitress does draw Trent's card, and he gets stuck paying the bill. Later, Neil returns to the office's novice systems where he catches Jessica going through the files in Peter's office. He asks her, what are you doing in the auditor's office? Jessica makes an excuse for her being there, saying that she doesn't like anyone looking into her life, personally or professionally. Neil points out the hypocrisy of her saying that she doesn't like somebody looking into her life while she's in the auditor's office, where she's not supposed to be, looking through the auditor's files, which she's not supposed to be, and doing it secretly because she doesn't want anybody to see her looking through these things. Jessica confronts Neil. She throws it back at him asking, well, what are you doing in the office after hours? And he makes an excuse about checking field studies on a new product launch and admits that, well, you know, I could tell on you and you could tell on me. So they come to an unspoken truce, agreeing that neither will report the other and Jessica leaves. Back at his hotel room, Peter is talking to the absent Elizabeth. You're probably asleep right now. Oh, I know it's too late for coffee, but this is Ethiopian Sadamo, and it's not decaf, and it's delicious. I know I'll be tossing all night, which would probably drive you crazy if you were here or I was there. This could have been my life. Any regrets? No. But it's not all that bad. Coffee's good, and we should think about silk sheets. I never saw myself as a rogue guy, but I don't know. When in Rome, I love you. Peter admits that this imaginary life isn't all that bad. And there are elements of it that he appreciates. The fine coffee, the silk sheets, even the robe. The fact is that these are all things that he could have even in his real life. They may be harder for him to pay for than they would be in some alternate life. He may not be able to enjoy them as often as he could in some alternate life. But he could, he could get them in real life if he really wanted them. In fact, he could already have had them if he really wanted them but he doesn't say anything about wishing that he had that life instead of his real life. I get the sense that part of the reason that he's finding these things enjoyable at the moment is because, in a sense, he's sharing them with Elizabeth. Sure, she's not there physically, but she's there in his mind. And I think that without her, he probably wouldn't find them as enjoyable. Or maybe that's just me. Next, Neil arrives at Peter's room and tells him that Jessica took the bait. He hands him a folder with her personal information. They find out that she began working for Novus 14 months earlier, 
just four months after Novus put in its bid for a defense contract, suggesting that she could be spying for one of Novus's competitors. Neil tells Peter that Jessica has been sending out a lot of mail to a post office box in White Plains, except that the company doesn't do any business in White Plains. Peter says that he will have Jones get a warrant for that P.O. box and that if Neil should get the chance to check out Jessica's office, he should take it. As they're talking, room service brings in Peter's dinner and it's Kobe steak. Peter asks, what's Kobe beef? He says it somewhat rhetorically, but it's also to just kind of rub it in on Neil that he's the one there eating the steak in the fancy hotel room and not Neil. Kobe beef and Wagyu are terms that are often used interchangeably. The term Wagyu is an umbrella term that's used to encompass any cattle, purebred or interbred, between four specific breeds of Japanese cattle. The Japanese Black, Japanese Brown, Japanese Shorthorn, and Japanese Pauled. Wagyu can be crossbred, purebred, or full-blooded, and does not necessarily have to be raised in Japan. Kobe beef is a brand of Wagyu. Standards this brand follows are amazingly strict and precise. In order to qualify to be Kobe beef, the steer must be of the Tajima or Japanese black cattle breed, must be born, raised, fed, and processed in the Hyogo prefecture. When it's graded, the score for the beef must be A4 or higher, and the only score higher is A5, and it must have a beef marbling score of 6 or higher. More marbling in beef means a tender, creamier texture and is what Wagyu and Kobe beef connoisseurs highly prize. So the higher the BMS score, the more expensive the beef is. The gross weight of the beef produced from one animal must be 470 kilograms or 1,036 pounds or less. Beef must be marked with the Japanese chrysanthemum as part of their security system. The beef must have a fine texture and excellent firmness. Although many may know the term Kobe beef, actual Kobe beef in the United States is really quite rare. The limited availability and strict standards contribute to a very tight supply of Kobe beef. A term that I've seen listed in the United States for beef as I was doing research was Kobe style beef. I would say that that's probably beef that meets the grading score and the marbling scores, but everything else, no, not so much. One important ingredient has been added to Peter's dinner, and that's an invitation to join Kent for dinner the following evening. Over in Neil's apartment, Diana and Mozzie are trying to work together, but Mozzie seems to be more interested in cleaning and disinfecting his computer. That is clearly annoying Diana, who says Mozzie has OCD. It's a wonder he's not wearing rubber gloves and a mask. But Mozzie finally finishes disinfecting his computer and launches into his discourse. Basically, Fowler seems to have fallen off the face of the earth. No hits on his credit cards, bank accounts, or a passport. Mozzie makes a bad sexually suggestive pun, which clearly doesn't set well with Diana. Apparently, she isn't one for low humor, and she expresses her displeasure of his tasteless pun. She shows Mozzie the FBI file on Fowler, which is little more than next to nothing. Diana says that OPR swept it all under the rug, but it seems more likely to me that somebody tried to sanitize his file. It isn't just that OPR doesn't want their dirty laundry left in the public where somebody might inadvertently pick it up. It's that somebody, probably the mysterious figure behind the conspiracy and behind Kate's death, 
doesn't want anything or anybody found laying around that might connect it all back to that person. As they're working together, they are interrupted by June, who has questions for Diana regarding some forms that Peter gave her concerning Neil's housing arrangements. June pulls Diana away from the table where she and Mozzie were working, giving him a chance to peek into her briefcase where he spots a copy of the music for Mozart's Piano Sonata No. 2 in F. Mozart's Piano Sonata No. 2 in F is a real piece of music. However, what we see in Diana's briefcase does present a slight problem. First off, the music we see is not in the key of F, or specifically F major, because it has four flats. That's the little lowercase b-shaped characters on the music staff at the beginning, which puts it either in the key of A-flat major or F minor. Well, this is easily solved. This is the second movement of Mozart's Piano Sonata in F, which is actually in F minor, so that fits. But the time signature is wrong. What it shows is a three-quarter time signature. The actual time signature is 6-8. Although they are similar mathematically and even similar musically, they are different musically. In three-quarter time, the first beat of a group of three always receives the same emphasis each time. And, of course, it has more emphasis than the other two in the group. So it's one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. In 6-8, the first beats of each of the two groups of three, which comprise the six-beat group, that is beats one and four, do receive greater emphasis than the other beats, which would be two, three, five, and six. But beat four, which is the first beat of the second group of three, receives less emphasis than the first beat of the six, which is also the first beat of the first group of three. So it would be... One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. The difference is subtle, but the two have a very real and different feel in a performance. So, how did Diana get this music with an incorrect time signature on it? I can't say that I recall the state of technology back in 2010. It's entirely possible that a piece of computer software could take the music from the music box, record it, and transcribe that, and that it would assign a three-quarter beat to the transcript and print that out on a printer. And we do know that, or we can tell, that the music that Diana has is a transcript from the music box because the length of the music printed on that sheet music that she has is only several bars long, which corresponds really to the length of the music in the music box. So somebody either transcribed it from ear or they ran it through a computer program and it spit out this printed version of the music for her. And that's the best explanation I can come up with for the discrepancy. Back into the scene, as June leaves, Diana tells Mozzie she has to leave and to send her everything he has unaware that he has seen the music in her briefcase. Now, I do have a question. Was June's appearance a fortuitous coincidence that gave Mozzie the opportunity to peek into Diana's briefcase, or was it a prearranged distraction? We know that June is almost always willing to help out Neil, even when what he wants or needs is somewhat deceptive or dishonest. June's game. And since she not only has an affection for Mozzie as well, but knows that Mozzie is often acting on Neil's behalf. I think she would be likely willing to help out with 
this kind of a deception. So was the interruption planned specifically to give Mozzie an opportunity to peek into Diane's briefcase? I would say there's a good argument there, since June seems to specifically draw Diana away from the table when there really was no need for her to do so. She could have shown Diana the paperwork, the forms right there at the table and had that conversation. So I'm thinking that the distraction may have been planned. Next day at the offices of Novus, it's apparently lunchtime and we see Jessica leave her office and head out for lunch. This gives Neil the opportunity to search through her outgoing mail where he finds an envelope addressed to that mysterious P.O. box in White Plains, New York. He had previously grabbed a can of compressed air and brought it in to the office with him, so he inverts the can, which causes it to expel moisture along with air, and sprays down the envelope, revealing the contents through the moistened paper of the envelope. What he sees is a copy of the International Travel Itinerary for CEO Wesley Kent. When she returns to her office from lunch, she sees evidence of somebody having been in her office. Neil was careless. He had moved the incoming and outgoing mail trays during his foray into her office, but failed to return them to the original position, or at least close enough to the original position that it wouldn't be noticed that he had moved them at some point. And as a result, we can see from the look on her face and the look in Neil's direction that she is suspicious of Neil. And she has reason to be. She had previously caught him in the office after hours where he shouldn't have been when he shouldn't have been. Next, we see Neil meeting Peter in the hall near the elevator. He tells Peter that Jessica is looking into Kent. Question is, why? Peter says that Jones got that search warrant to look through the P.O. box in White Plains, and if they find anything incriminating, they're going to bring Jessica in for questioning. After the conversation, Neil heads out to meet Mozzie. Hey. Let's make this quick. I need to get back to the office. I had to go with Diana. I saw some sheet music in her briefcase. It was Mozart's Piano Sonata Number no. 2 in F from 1775. The year the music box was made. There's no historical record of what song it's playing. The only way she would know it's Mozart is if she's heard it. Peter trusts Diana, and I trust him. Could be something. Could be nothing. I just thought you should know. Even though Neil tries to downplay it, they both realize that this means that Diana must have been in direct contact with the music box. They know that she was the one who logged it into the evidence locker, but there would have been no real reason for her to open it and listen to the music. And even if she had, there would be no reason for her to be researching the music it played, assuming she even remembered it or had recorded it, which, of course, she would have no reason to have recorded it. Yeah, it's it's all... It all points to Diana having the music box and doing research on it. So even though they don't know for certain what's going on with Diana in the music box, they have enough circumstantial evidence to be reasonably sure that something is going on with Diana in the music box. After their discussion of Mozzie's discovery, Mozzie tells Neil that he has a tail. It's Jessica. Neil says, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. But Mozzie needs to stick close to Diana. This doesn't set well with Mozzie. Apparently, he's already had more of her than he cares to have. But that's what Neil needs, so Mozzie agrees. Neil and Mozzie part ways, and Neil begins to track down Jessica, who had started making her getaway as Neil and Mozzie had concluded their conversation. She tries to give Neil a slip, but he catches her. Cornered, 
Jessica responds by pulling a gun, pointing it at Neil, and demanding to know, is Neil working for Kent? When Neil says no, he's with the FBI, and he was sent in to try to discover who killed Joseph Hayes. Jessica tells Neil that's what she's trying to discover. At the FBI offices, Peter and Neil question Jessica. Your handgun was registered to Joseph Hayes. You want to explain that? Joseph and I were close. You were seeing each other? Yes. What do you know about the project he was working on? The microprocessor? Mm-hmm. He said he was close to a functioning prototype. Kent claimed the prototype was already working. He lied. Why did you break into Hayes' email account, rummage through his desktop? The day before he was murdered, Joseph was acting different. He said someone was following him. He said not to tell anyone anything about what I knew, and then he gave me the gun. And you started playing detective. Kent murdered someone I care about very much, and I would do anything to make sure he pays. Look, he's been taking trips, okay? By himself, under the guise of business. Eastern Europe, China. No one knows why. You were trying to find out. I was trying to get into Kent's office. I've been seeing garbage bins coming out of there. He's been destroying documents, shredding them, and then putting them in burn bags. Peter was pretty rough on Jessica. It's understandable that he would be suspicious of her story. And being suspicious of her story, it's understandable he would push. But he seems he seems a bit overly rough on her. Neil appears to be more sympathetic. When Peter sarcastically accuses Jessica of playing detective, Neil gives Peter a look that seems to say, come on, man, that's a bit harsh. And in one sense, it was a bit harsh. After all, if you accept her story about her relationship with Hayes and Hayes' behavior leading up to his murder, then you have to accept that she would want to know who was responsible. And if she believed that Wesley Kent was responsible, she would try to do what she could to discover the truth. But what she did was highly questionable. Possibly illegal, but certainly risky. Her actions could have gotten her or someone else killed, as well as potentially compromising the investigation. And it certainly did cloud the investigation. The proper course of action would have been for her to report her suspicions and the basis for them to the proper authorities and not to try to play Nancy Drew, as Peter says. So I think we can understand Peter's response, but given the fact that she had just lost somebody or apparently lost somebody who was near to her. I think Peter could have gotten his point across without being quite so harsh. One thing that Jessica had said was that Kent was shredding documents. They need a way to find out what those documents that he's shredding are. Now, they've got kind of a good news, bad news situation going on here. The good news, the techs have a scanner that can be attached to the head of Kent's shredder, scanning copies of documents before they're shredded. Bad news? Kent's office is extremely secure. Only Kent and his assistant have access. More good news. Since only Kent and his assistant have access, no one will be on the entire floor during lunch. More bad news. The key cards that give Kent and his assistant access to the top floor of the building can't be duplicated. And... There's also a voice-activated security system that only responds to Kent's voice to unlock the door to his office. Even more good news, they know the password for the voice-activated system. But back on the more bad news side, because the password's in Latin, they can't find a recording of Kent saying the password, nor can they splice together recordings to recreate the password and Kent's voice. But they have an idea. Get Kent to somehow say it, during his dinner with Peter, 
who will have a recorder hidden to record Kent saying the password. I appreciate the invite. Well, it's the least I could do. Believe me, I wish I could do more. Oh, I'm, I'm fine, really. How would you like to come work for me? I'm in the middle of auditing your company and you're offering me work? Well, I've seen your credentials. Peter Lassen looks damn good on paper, but he'd look even better in my offices. I've already got a job. No, working for Novus is more than a job. It's an achievement. It's a new beginning. Hence the name of your corporation. You know, you're Latin. I understand the etymology of Novus. It's synonymous with the newly arrived, unique, and original. I also know a few other words. Damihi factum dabutibi ius. Give me the facts and I will give you the law. You want the facts? Okay. What I'm working on right now, it's gonna set up the company and everyone in it for life. Look, I'm a self-made guy. So am I. And I believe that every man makes his own fortune with a good decision. The politician Chakis, he had a saying for that, didn't he? Febre sue quisque fortune. Every man is an artisan to his own fortune. Amen. Peter gets the recording of the password but he also gets a highly unethical job offer, possibly even illegal, at the very least, borderline illegal. As Peter notes, he, as Peter Lassen, is auditing Kent's company. And now here's Kent, right in the middle of the audit, offering him a highly paid job with the promise of being set up for life. It's essentially a bribe. Blatantly so. After all, what would happen to that job offer if Peter returned a negative audit, it would almost certainly go away. So if Peter would like to have the job, he's been given a motive to provide a positive audit result, regardless of the truth. The question is, is Kent really so stupid that he thinks he can get away with such an obvious bribe? Or is he so arrogant that he thinks he can get away with such an obvious bribe? I'm going to say the latter. I think he believes that money will sway most people in his way. And if not, then there's always murder to solve the problem. After all, he is our prime suspect in the murder of a man who may not have been swayed by money and may have stood in his way. Later, after Peter gives Neil the recording of Kent saying the passcode, it's time for Neil to spring into action. As Kent and his assistant are leaving for lunch, Neil passes by them and steals the assistant's key card. Once on the floor where Kent's office is, he uses the recording to let himself into Kent's inner office and then he attaches the scanner to the top of the shredder. Back at the FBI offices, Neil is talking to Jessica. When she asks how he got into Kent's office, he plays her the recording, then drops the pen recorder into a desk drawer. He tries to encourage her with the promise that they will get the evidence to put Kent away, but she isn't to be consoled. When she describes the sensations that Hayes would have experienced as he was dying, Neil says she just can't think about that, and then she asks, If someone took away the person you loved, wouldn't you want them to know how it feels? Of course, what she doesn't know is that Neil is in exactly that position, the same position Jessica's in. Isn't thinking about how Kate died exactly what he's doing? It's hard to imagine that he isn't constantly thinking about her death and the manner of her death, and maybe even the possibility of making the person responsible feel what she felt. 
we've heard the calm, barely emotional coldness in his voice when he talks about her death. This case just hits a little bit too close to home for Neil, and I think that it's starting to affect him and stirring up desires for payback that even he may not have been willing to acknowledge before now. Peter motions Neil into the conference room, and Neil leaves Jessica at the desk where he had dropped the pen recorder into the drawer, and then he goes to join Peter. Peter reveals that the prototype microprocessor wasn't stolen, Kent had it the entire time, and Kent merely tried to make it look like espionage, and most of all, the prototype never worked. That, says Peter, was the cover-up. And now he knows why Hayes was killed. Kent knew he couldn't win the contract from the U.S. Department of Defense, so he was planning to sell the technology to a foreign government. It was treason, and Hayes wasn't having any of it, so he had to be gotten rid of. And by trying to make it look like a competitor stole a working product, Novus has spared the embarrassment of its failure. And then when a foreign government turns up with it later, Kent's in the clear. And with Hayes dead, no one is any the wiser. Of course, the problem is that they can't prove Kent guilty of treason because he hasn't actually committed it yet. But he has committed murder. But they need a way to prove it. Maybe Hayes talked to someone before he died. I'm meeting Kent in the afternoon. Maybe I can hint to him that she knows something. He'll come after her. And when he does, we take him down. Think she's up to it? She's certainly driven. Yeah, that's what worries me. I'm not sure if she wants revenge or justice. I can't blame her either way. You have empathy for that woman. What if I do? There's a right way to do things and a wrong way. Revenge is the wrong way. It's short-sighted and it's dangerous. What's justice then? It's restoring order, not furthering chaos. You kept that recording data from me. I hope you don't have any more secrets. Likewise. You talked to Diana lately? Not today. You trust her? As much as you trust your friend. Is there a problem? What happens if we do find Fowler? What comes next? We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Together. If there was any question before that revenge for Kate was on Neil's mind, or at least it was one option in his mind, Uh, I think this conversation pretty much answers that question. Peter seems to know and be concerned that revenge is exactly what is on Neil's mind. I think he realizes that Neil is struggling with trying to see any real difference between revenge and justice. And I think that's a struggle that's been fought by humans for as long as there have been humans. I think Peter comes close to giving a good explanation of the differences when he says revenge is short-sighted and dangerous and that justice is restoring order, not furthering chaos. I think it's close because I think he missed it just a bit. I agree that justice is restoring societal order. I agree that revenge is short-sighted and dangerous. But that's not a definition. That's an explanation. I think an actual definition of revenge would be that it is a personal response to an injustice at the cost of justice, and at the cost of furthering societal chaos. I think Peter wants Neil to not only understand the difference, but also to understand the dangers to himself in a quest for revenge. I think he also wants Neil to understand that Peter is there with him to help him seek justice for Kate, but only up to the line of justice, and that Peter will do anything he can 
or needs to do to stop Neil if Neil should want to go beyond that line and the quest becomes about anything more than justice. The plan to catch Kent gets underway. Peter meets with Kent, tells him that the audit came out clean, but then drops a hint that Jessica knows something. The idea being that Kent will consider her a danger and come after her. Peter says that Jessica was involved with one of his former employees in the research and development department, somebody named Joseph Hayes, that the two of them shared a hotel room numerous times, and when confronted, Jessica asked Peter not to say anything about it. Kent casually says, okay, he'll take care of it, and then offers Peter a glass of Armagnac to celebrate the successful audit. Now, Armagnac is a distinctive kind of brandy that is produced in the Armagnac region of Gascony in southwest France. Armagnac is one of the first areas of France that began to distill spirits, and Armagnac is the oldest brandy recorded to still be distilled in the world. I did a search, and I found prices as low as $30 a bottle and as high as $20,000 a bottle. Most of the bottles I found listed did not share the same bottle style as what we see in the episode. I did find one called the Clay de Deuce Exo Besquais. I'm sorry, I don't speak French, and I know I butchered that, so I, I apologize to anybody who does speak French. And it looks very similar to what we see in the episode. It's the same shape, same style bottle. The label's a little bit different. It's as close as I could find. And I found that sells for about $66 a bottle. So not extremely expensive, but I would not consider it inexpensive. At least on my income, I would not consider that inexpensive. We jump to Jessica and Neil outside. They're talking, and Neil is preparing her for being placed into the witness protection program. But Mozzie calls, and everything starts to fall apart. What is it, Moss? I did some additional checking. Peter knows Diana has the box. What? I, I didn't want to say anything until I was sure, but... The trail for the box just goes cold with him. Neil, there can't be any other explanation. I'll call you back. Why do you have this? Um, I, I found it on your you desk. You were in Kent's I... office. What'd you do, Jessica? I want him to know how it feels to die the way that Joseph died. Poison him? How? His daily advice. The arm and yet. Peter's in there with him. When Mozzie tells Neil that the only reasonable conclusion, based on the evidence, is that Diana must have the music box and that Peter must know it, Neil is clearly shocked, stunned, taken aback. That really has to hurt. Peter's the one who keeps saying that they're in this together, and now Neil finds out that Peter's been holding out on him, which has to make Neil wonder if Peter hasn't been playing him the whole time. After all, holding out doesn't seem to be the sort of thing that says we're in this together. So when he realizes that Jessica has poisoned the Armagnac and that Peter was with Kent and could be in danger, it wouldn't have been a surprise if he had hesitated. In fact, I would say it's surprising that after getting the news from Mozzie about Peter holding out on him and seemingly betraying his trust, it's surprising he didn't hesitate. But the fact is, he didn't hesitate at all. 
I'd say that doubt didn't even cross his mind as to what to do because his response was, Peter's in danger, and I've got to get in there for him. Which I think shows that despite the apparent betrayal, he not only trusts Peter, he trusts Peter even when it doesn't seem that he should or could. Granted, his faith in Peter may waver from time to time, but it's not enough that he's going to let Peter down. Neil races into Kent's office. The security guard tries to stop him from coming into the building and getting into the elevator that leads up to Kent's office, but he really can't do much. He's essentially just a glorified door greeter, and the only real tool he has to deal with the situation is the threat to call the police, which, of course, doesn't slow Neil down. He says, call them and call for an ambulance. The elevators were apparently in some sort of park mode for the night, so Neil has to hotwire the elevator to take him up to the floor where Kent's office is. Meanwhile, Peter and Kent are feeling the effects of the poison. Digitalis intoxication, also known as digitalism, results from an overdose of digitalis, and it causes abdominal pains, including vomiting and diarrhea, severe headaches, various cerebral disturbances, which include, among other things, blurry and colored vision with objects appearing yellowish to greenish and blue halos around lights. Also causes wild hallucinations and delirium. It causes bradycardia, which is a decreased heart rate, or tachycardia, increased heart rate, depending on the dose and the condition of one's heart. Causes tremors, weakness, collapse, seizures, and then even death. The typical treatments of electrocardioversion are to shock the heart or the administration of amiodarone for ventricular fibrillations can actually worsen the deadly dysrhythmias caused by a digitalis overdose. So lidocaine, which is usually a second-choice drug for treating dysrhythmia, is typically used. That's just a little side information there. While Peter and Kent are suffering with the symptoms of the poisoning, Peter begins quizzing Kent. Part of it is practical. He is Peter Burke, poisoning victim. He's asking how much time do they have, is there an antidote, and so on, because he wants to know what the situation is. But he's also being Peter Burke, FBI agent. The same questions he asked as a poisoning victim also stand as accusations against Kent, because like Peter, Kent is a poisoning victim, and now he has no choice but to answer and to admit that he poisoned Hayes if he wants to get out of it alive. Because admitting he did it and giving the answers to the questions, if he has them, may be the only thing that saves his life at this point. Of course, Kent doesn't have the answers. Yes, he poisoned Hayes. He doesn't even bother to deny it. And he knows about how long Hayes lived after being poisoned. But he doesn't seem to know anything about any antidote. They both collapsed on the floor when Neil rushes in. He grabs the semi-conscious Peter and drags him to the elevator and begins banging on the button. I've always wondered why people do that. Banging elevator buttons, crosswalk buttons, and so on. It doesn't make the elevator come any faster or the crosswalk light light up any faster. In fact, in many places around the country, here at least here in the U.S., crosswalk buttons are fakes. They're placebos. They aren't actually hooked up to anything and don't actually do anything. They're just there because it's tradition and it makes people feel good. But once you push the button, it's been pushed. It's going to do what it's going to do. Banging on the button doesn't do any good. I've never understood that. Anyway, Peter is coherent enough to realize that Neil isn't going back for Kent. He insists that Neil grab Kent as well, saying, we don't leave anybody behind. 
showing that Peter has more honor than so many people do. People who willfully abandon others for the sake of expedience and have no concern for the lives of others. I, I don't want to give the impression, though, that I think that Neil not going back to drag Kent out until Peter insisted is necessarily a negative mark against Neil. I don't think Neil was thinking of it as willfully abandoning Kent. I think he was looking at the situation and based on the experience and knowledge that he had, the limited experience and knowledge that he had, he believed he had to make a choice that he could only save one person's life, not both. And that if he tries to save both, he'll save neither. So his default choice is to save Peter because they're partners and friends. Also, Peter's an innocent victim in this. Kent is a known murderer, even though they don't have enough evidence yet to prove it in court, or at least as far as Neil knows. Neil probably, and quite understandably, feels that Kent is just getting what he deserves. It's the old what goes around comes around thing, or those who live by the sword will die by the sword thing, which is totally different than abandoning an innocent person. So I don't view Neil's actions as being a sign of ill intent. Next, we jump ahead a little bit, and we see Peter and Kent being wheeled out on gurneys by the paramedics. Diana is there to handcuff Kent, who is dazed and confused and doesn't realize that he had just confessed to an FBI agent. In fact, I'm not sure he even realizes he confessed at all, which will be something his lawyers will no doubt argue with the prosecutor and judge about. Neil comes up to Peter and says something which really reveals a fundamental difference in their views of justice. Neil says, you're taking this innocent until proven guilty thing a little bit too far. Peter responds, well, if he lives or dies, that's not my call. You do what's right. You let the pieces fall where they fall. After Peter's loaded up in the ambulance and taken away, Diana tells Neil that Jessica didn't intend to harm Peter, but it's still attempted murder on both Kent and Peter and that she's going to be charged. We jump forward and see that Peter has recovered, and he is back at work in his office, and Neil comes in to talk. Come on, you can't tell me you don't miss it. The imported beans, the giant office, and swanky sweet. All right, I'm going to humor you for a second. What if I went corporate right after college? Best case scenario, I became a millionaire. What if I never joined the FBI? What if 12 years ago, I was never assigned to an art gallery scam downtown? What if I never met this assistant manager? No, there are more important things in life than a nice view. Like having people in your life you care about. I don't want to imagine the man I'd be without those people. I like the man I am. I like the man I am. I think everybody imagines that they could make a decision in their life that would change their careers, change their economic status, lifestyle, position in life, but that somehow everything else in our lives would remain the same. You know, we'd have the same friends, we'd have the same spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend, same kids, whatever that the only things that would change would be those few things that we think we missed out on, uh, that we wish we had, that we maybe could have had if only we had done this or not done that or gone to this place or not gone to some other place. But the fact is that every decision we make, 
every decision we've made affects every fundamental aspect of our lives. We would not have met the people we did, would not have the people in our lives that we do, have been the people we turned out to be had we not made those other choices. Even the small choices, like choosing to walk down one street instead of another street on a particular day to get somewhere. We don't know what would have happened. We don't know how that small decision, that inconsequential decision, could have turned into the biggest change in our lives because of something that would have happened to us that didn't because we were on one street instead of another. From the decisions that we make, the different decisions that we could have made would have ended up putting us in what would have been, in an almost literal sense, an alternate universe. And I think Peter really nails it on the head when he says what he does here. And when Peter's done, Neil sums up Peter's guiding principle by repeating back to him what he had said earlier on the gurney. Do what's right. Yeah. (laughs) You lied to me about the music box. I know you still have it. You want to talk about it? If you're ready to listen. I didn't tell you anything. For your own protection. I don't know what you're going to do, and neither do you. I know my options. Revenge or justice, right? Neil, as long as I'm involved, it's going to be the latter. What if justice isn't good enough? It has to be. It will be. Neil's attitude is a bit confrontational. Uh, He doesn't... I don't think he sees what Peter did about withholding the information about having the music box as doing the right thing. I think he is upset about Peter having seemingly lied to him. Of course, it would be more accurate to say that he withheld information from him. But he isn't angry. He is upset, but he doesn't seem angry. I think he accepts that Peter was trying to do what was right, even though Neil may not agree or understand why Peter believes it's right, and even though he may disagree with it and think that it wasn't right. I think he's giving Peter a little bit of the benefit of the doubt here. But Neil expresses a feeling that many people have. What if justice isn't enough? But as Peter said early in the episode, revenge is short-sighted. It's dangerous. It's chaos. Revenge is disproportionate. Justice is dispassionate. Revenge doesn't care about the collateral damage it causes to others. Justice is focused and will not cause additional victims in its quest to mete out justice on the guilty. As Peter says, justice has to be enough. Peter shows Neil the box, and he points to the hole on the top where a cherub should have been and tells Neil, it's a keyhole. Neil pulls out the missing cherub key from his pocket, puts it in the hole, and tells Peter, no more secrets. Peter responds, no more secrets. Neil turns the key, and the music box unlocks. They lift the lid to reveal the end of the episode. I will be providing links to all the resources I use to put this episode together, to the new podcast app's website, to the White Collar Fandom Facebook page, as well as show notes on the official website, 
which you can find at www.whitecollaredpc.com. Please be sure to tell a fellow white collar fan about the podcast. I want to thank you for listening and ask you to please join me for the next episode as I share my thoughts on season two, episode nine, point blank. Until then, take care and God bless.